And you've probably been like overdosing on Winter Olympics, right? You didn't even know you could watch so much Olympics, but you're doing it, right? You got a lot of days ahead of you. When I say the name Scott Hamilton, uh, he is associated with figure skating greatness. Uh, this guy, starting in uh, 1981, he won 16 consecutive national and world championships. He was also a gold medal winner, and he's also been inducted in the U.S. Olympics as well as the World Figure Skating. Uh, Hall of Fame. So this guy is well known. Uh, he's been to actually nine different Olympics, seven as a commentator, uh, two as a competitor. You will actually see him or hear from him as well uh, in these Olympics as well. Now, last weekend, Parade Magazine, they had him featured with Karen Chen. Karen Chen, 18 years old. This is her very first Olympics representing the United States. And in this article, uh, we find that Scott Hamilton is giving her a game plan of how to go into the Olympics. And this is what he said. He told her, think of it as an opportunity instead of an obligation. When you have an opportunity, your chin comes out a little bit. You can go out there and just skate for it and show everybody what you're made of. It takes away all the nerves and the pressure. You're prepared and you're ready to take that thing and grab it. I want you to know that every Olympic athlete has a game plan on how to win. If you're of the mindset that, well, they just they have two minutes and 40 seconds to make up something uh, on the ice there, and they'll just kind of dance around and jump around, and they haven't really thought it through. No, they have everything planned. They've rehearsed it. They are practicing it in their mind because they have a game plan. They intend to win. And you need to, need to understand that when we go through life, you don't just make it up as you go, even though I know a lot of folks, they're doing that. You want to have a game plan. Wouldn't it be cool if there were just some basic principles, some guidelines for going through life, a, a mindset to move forward? And you don't have to be just hoping that it might be. I want you to know that if you've got a Bible and you've got Ecclesiastes chapter 9 in it, you have the mindset for moving forward in faith. And we're going to take a look at it. So let's begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, the mindset for moving forward in life begins with this verse, be confident in God. Let's take a look. He says, for I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. You want to move forward in life. It all begins with this verse. You and I. We need to develop a confidence in God. He says, I've internalized this. I've owned it. I have taken it to heart. And he says, those who are righteous, those who are in a right relationship with God, they believe God by faith, like Abraham did. That is then carried out by how they live. He says, righteous men. And you need to understand that you and I who believe in God, he intends for that relationship to show up in how we live. That right behavior is sourced in a right relationship with God. He says, I have seen that righteous men and wise men, wise individuals who have skill for living, those who have wisdom are able to take the chaotic and bring order, take raw materials and build something useful, to take difficulties of life and make something meaningful from it. He says, I want you to know that righteous men and wise individuals and their deeds, they are in the hand of God. 
They are literally in God's control and his possession. You need to know that if you're a believer in God, you really truly trust in him, that you are in his hand. You may not fully understand everything that's going on in your life, but you are not out of his control. In fact, you need to understand that he loves you immensely. When we're when we see this verse here, this verse doesn't say, well, listen, you need to understand if you're righteous, you're wise, you're not going to have any problems at work. Everybody's going to like you. Um, you'll never have any health issues. No, that's not what this verse is saying. He's saying that anything that you encounter, whatever happens to you, God has his hands and he's got it in control. Confidence in God really changes how we live. It brings about a sense of Stability, creativity, courage, joy, peace. It is how God intends for us to move forward in this life to recognize not just at a head level, but to embrace it from the heart. Like you see here, like Solomon writing about, you've taken it to heart that I am trusting in him. You not only say it, but you pray it. You have an active trust in God. I'll give you a great prayer. For this to become a reality in your life, you'll find it Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. You might want to actually memorize these verses. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If you want to move forward in this life, it all begins with being confident in God. And let me show you a second aspect of this mindset. You'll find it in verses 2 through 10. Not only do you want to be confident in God, but you want to make the most of your days. Let's take a look. He says, verse 2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean. He says, whether you're wicked, you're righteous, whether you're good or bad, whether you're ceremonially clean or unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swear, those who will take an oath before God. And as, as for the one who is afraid to swear, there is one fate. And that word really should be translated like outcome. It's an outcome determined by God. All of us, whether you're good, bad, or indifferent, guess what? We all die. He says there's one fate. And look at verse 3. He says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And afterwards, they go to the dead did you see that? Uh, verse 3. You and I are familiar with like the doctrine of depravity, okay? We're bad, we've got, we're evil, we're sinful by nature. But did you ever consider the doctrine of insanity? It's right there in your Bible. He says not only are we evil, but he says men are, it has insanity is in their hearts. That word means madness, delusional. Filled with folly. And it's right there in scripture. That actually describes the human condition. 
Like one Old Testament scholar describes it, we are the awful mixture of meanness and madness, evil and insanity. I mean, how else do you explain how people live and like even the American culture? I mean, think of it. We have moral insanity. We don't know what's right or what's wrong. I mean, it keeps changing because if you don't have your bearings in God and his word, then you're free to make it up. And it changes with the wind. We live in sexual insanity. We, we, right now, what we're experiencing, just complete unraveling in our culture. If it feels good and you think you want to do it, just fine. It just doesn't matter. We're instilling this idea that you don't even have, you determine your own sexual identity. And you know who's paying for it? Our kids. Get ready. Our culture is going to be completely messed up. Ten years from now, it may be unrecognizable how everything is unraveling. You look at uh, homicidal insanity. Look at all the rationalization that takes place. You're like, are you serious? But we make up all these excuses. You got materialistic madness, judicial madness. If you want to know the human condition, you find it here in verse three. We're evil and we've got like this well of insanity and it actually resides in our hearts. We can drink from it anytime you want. You can swim around in it and you can spew it from your life. And how else do you explain when you you sit down with someone that's about ready to blow up their life? They're going to make a decision that's going to have a lot of implications for their marriage, for their family, for the grandkids. And you say, listen, you should not do this. Let me give me a couple Bible verses why this is a really bad idea. And they'll look at you and say, well... Yeah, yeah, I heard it, but I don't care. I'm still going to do it anyway. You know what that is? That's verse 3. It's evil and it is insanity. You know what we need? We need a savior from ourselves. That is the beauty of the gospel. Not only are we evil, not only are we prone to insanity, we are going to die. And that is why God has given a savior Not only one who is resurrected from the dead to offer life, but one who can give you sanity in this life. The right way, wisdom, righteous living, because you have a righteous faith. It's the power of the gospel, but you need to understand, you better get this figured out on this side of eternity, because we're all going to die. Look at verse 4. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. If you're alive today, even barely, you got hope. Hope to experience relationship with God. Hope to experience even goodness in this life, life under the sun. He says, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. And you're like, what? Okay, a live dog. Dogs uh, in biblical times, most of them were not domesticated. Uh, They kind of traveled around in packs. Think of like coyotes. Uh, People were generally afraid of dogs because they could do bad things to you. I mean, in our culture, I know, you know, we take them and we get their little nails clipped and we send them to the dry cleaners or whatever to clean them up or whatever, you know, and you know how it is. We spend a lot of money. Sometimes we treat our dogs better than people, but not to step on anybody's toes. But anyway, that wasn't true in biblical times. Dogs were despised, but he says, you know what? It's better to be a live dog than a dead lion, one of a majestic animal like a lion. Because once you're dead, you have no opportunity To experience what God has for those who are under the sun, life on earth. He says, for the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Now, he's not talking about eternity, because you need to understand 
you're going to live in eternity. You're either going to live with God and you'll be enjoying him forever, or you're going to live apart from God. And it is the place, like Jesus says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I beg you, don't go there. But really, the choice is yours. Are you going to believe in him or not? But once you die, life on earth, life under the sun, it's over. He says, indeed, verse 6, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. And they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. So you're like, whoa. Okay, so I get it. I understand that death is imminent. It's going to happen. And with the contrast of that understanding, you have verses 7 through 10. In essence, what he's saying is you want to make the most of your days. Life is short. Death is certain. So live in such a way that you can have a meaningful life. In my Bible, I've got this marked. I've got this underlined because, friends, this is life. God intends for us to make the most of our life. We're confident in him, but he wants us to make the most of our days. And so you're going to find in verses 7 through 10, there are like five imperatives. There is go. There's like this sense of urgency. Eat, drink, enjoy, do. It's like God wants us to actually pursue these things. We're in him. We're, we've got wisdom. We're righteous. He wants us to live in joy. And so uh, notice what he says. Look at verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved of your works. And what you're going to find in these verses is that God is saying, I want you to take the simple pleasures of life that I give my blessings and I want you to enjoy them. You don't need to go to some exotic place. You don't need to watch TV and see a commercial for like, oh, whoa, that's where the happiness is and, and spend money that you don't have to go places that you just saw on TV. Friends, he wants you to experience his joy in the blessings that he gives in this life. And he starts out with something super basic. Like what you're eating and what you're drinking. I, I, wanna, I want you to know that you should enjoy your food, okay? I'm sure my family's laughing at me. But I'll, I'll also say this. Don't like, just like devour it, like just inhale it. Actually, you want to enjoy every bite. Inhaling your food has bad outcomes in the long term. But if you could enjoy it, each bite, that's what God intends. Enjoy your food. And he says, and I don't want you to miss this. Not only he says, eat your bread and, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, but he says, but God, for God has already approved your works. Did you see that? God has created us to enjoy and he has approved of our works. That word approve means to take pleasure in or to react favorably. God not only gives us blessings, he gives us the ability to enjoy them. But most Christians really have never taken this to heart. Howard Hendricks would say at different times, you know, most Christians faces could serve as the cover for like the book of Lamentations, you know, just like oh, the joy of the Christian life. Like, oh. you know, it's like you got major indigestion. You have all sorts of pain. Your face is just kind of contorted. Part of the problem is we've never come to terms with the reality that God wants us to experience joy. He's given us himself. He's given us blessings. He's even given us the ability to enjoy these things. He's already approved of your works. 
I mean, what kind of perception do you have of God? How would you describe him? If you're going to throw out some descriptive words. There's a lot of people that think that God is just barely tolerating them. They think of God as an old, angry man with a big beard. He's got a club with a railroad spike kind of driven through it. And he's just just ready to just destroy you. He's barely tolerating you. You're just making a mess of life. And, you know, he's like, a few more days, I'm taking you up and you're out of here. You know, that is not who the father is. He's a God of love. He's gracious. It's like, I always have time for you. What more do you, I need to do to demonstrate my love for you? Let's talk. I want to hear what's going on in your heart. Tell me what you're thinking. You come to me with your problems. Let's cultivate a rich love relationship. And I've made that all possible through my son. I mean, friends, if you're in the family of God, you are loved immensely. He wants you to experience joy and enjoy life. God takes pleasure in our pleasure. Isn't that powerful? And look at this. Not only are we supposed to enjoy our food, look at verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. So if you're like wearing white today, good job. Some of you, oh yeah, you read ahead. And the idea is that like white, white clothes, oil, these were symbols of joy and purity. Now to wear white, like this was like worn like for times of celebration. So if you were a military victor, you'd wear like this white robe. If you were a slave and you had the ability to become emancipated, a white robe would be wrapped around you on the day of your emancipation. If you were a priest serving on high holy days in Israel, you wore white garments, symbols of joy and of purity. And when he's talking about anointing your head with oil, think of this. It's, it's like perfume. It's like in Psalm 45, I think it's like verse 7, where it talks about the, the oil of joy or the oil of gladness. If you want a biblical justification for a cologne or perfume, you've got it right there in verse 8. He says, you not only want to look good, you want to smell good. You want to enjoy life. That's what God has given it. And so he's saying, these are the things you should do. But you're like, whoa, I could die at any time. What do I have reason to express joy for? And that is exactly the point. You could die at any time so while you have life under the sun you are experiencing righteousness because you believe you're living in his wisdom you're growing in wisdom he wants you to enjoy your life make the most of your days look at this look at verse 9 not only should you enjoy your clothes and smell good if you can i mean those things are all helpful people generally appreciate that you want to enjoy your food But look at verse 9. Enjoy your spouse. He says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. The woman in whom you love, he's speaking of this man's wife. And he says, you want to enjoy her. You are to enjoy the one you have made a covenant to love you see love is a choice and he says enjoy the one you've made a covenant to love specifically he's saying listen life is fleeting it's soon going to quickly pass by if you're married enjoy your spouse so that means like spending time with her 
as a friend. Okay? It, it means value her as a person. I, I see some of you guys, you're either taking deep notes or you're like looking down like, when are, when are we going to be done with this verse? Okay? But this is what he's saying. You want to enjoy your life. Make the most of your days. Value her as a person. Listen carefully to what she has to say. I mean, I know you're a great problem solver and, and you've, you've solved the problem before you've heard it. Okay. That is never a good idea. And I know from firsthand experience, you know, listen, listen, listen. Don't be so quick to try to fix things. You probably don't know the answer anyway. Why don't you just listen? He says, I want you to enjoy your life and enjoy life with the woman who you love all your days. And this is really interesting. Solomon, he had lots of wives and concubines. But at the end of his life, when he is writing the book of Ecclesiastes, though he had made a serious mess of his, uh, his life, and he had married all these gals, and it was a debasement even to their own kingdom, notice what he says. One partner, one heart, one woman, you love her all your days. Marital fulfillment is a choice. Would you like to have an enjoyable life? Well, that is your choice, isn't it? What are you going to do? He says, enjoy your wife. Now, wives, I want to say something. If you want to, uh, if you want your husband to enjoy you, be enjoyable. How profound is that? I mean, are you easy to enjoy? Like, would you like to be around you? And you're like, yeah, okay, well then guess what? Your husband's going to like that. If not so much, you might want to think about that. And husbands, um, think about this. If you want your wife to desire your company, you want to be pleasant to be around. So we get this idea that, well, okay, well, she needs to show me a little respect first. When I get some respect coming, then, uh, then I'll start loving her and I'll enjoy her and all that sort of stuff. No, it doesn't work that way. He says, you, you love her, you enjoy her. And there's some wives that think, so, well, you know what? He needs to show a little leadership, okay? And once he starts doing that, then, then I'll be a little more enjoyable. Then I'll love. No, that's not how it works. Commitment is at the foundation. It is the bedrock of a genuinely loving relationship. What helps marriages to thrive? There's a guy by the name of John Gottman. He is one of the leading researchers on marriage. Uh, and he has two words, and I want to give them to you. Contempt and kindness. Here's what his research found, and this is a summary from an article, but let me read this to you. Contempt. Contempt is the number one factor that tears couples apart. People who are focused on criticizing their partners miss a whopping 50% of the positive things their partners are doing, and they see negatively when it's not there. People who give their partner the cold shoulder, deliberately ignoring the partner or responding minimally, damage the relationship by making their partner feel worthless and invisible, as if they're not there, not valued. And people who treat their partners with contempt and criticize them, not only kill the love in the relationship, but listen to this, but they also kill their partner's ability to fight off viruses and cancers. Being mean is the death knell of relationships. But then this article goes on to write as part of this summary. Kindness, on the other hand, glues couples together. 
Research, independent from theirs, has shown that kindness is one of the most important predictors of satisfaction and stability in a marriage. Kindness makes each partner feel cared for, understood, and validated, feeling loved. That's how kindness works, too. There's a great deal of evidence showing the more someone receives or witnesses kindness, the more they will be kind to themselves, which leads to, an, leads to upward spirals of love and generosity and in a relationship. So what is it going to be for you? God wants you to experience joy. He wants you to love and to enjoy your spouse. So here's a question you want to ask. Am I being kind? Think about it this week. Is this kind? Is this kind? If it is, it's going to go well for you. If it's not, you're bringing death to your marriage. God says, I want you to experience joy. Not only joy in your food and joy in your clothing and smelling good, joy with your spouse. He wants you to enjoy your work. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is kind of like the abode of the dead, where you're going. You're going to die. He says, I want you to make the most of your life, most of your days. That includes your work. He wants us, whether you're like in the law or you're a doctor or you're a mechanic or you're involved in construction or education or medicine or ministry or you're in the arts or you're a student or you're the high calling of a homemaker, or you're doing all of those things. He wants you to make the most of your time, and like the text says, do your work with all your might. You want to invest yourself. God has given you gifts, experiences, education. Make the most of your time. And I will tell you, there is a great need in our society for us to live this verse out. Uh, according to Gallup's poll in 2013, there was an article called The State of the American Workplace. They did a survey of American workers and they found that they're growing more and more disengaged from their work. Here is what the poll found. Get ready, listen to this. Of the approximately 100 million people in America who hold full-time jobs, 30% are engaged and inspired at work. That's good, 30%. Listen to this. 50% are disengaged, or what Gallup describes as kind of present, but not inspired by their work or their managers. 20% are actively disengaged. Only 22% of U.S. employees are engaged and thriving. And Gallup estimates that actively disengaged employees cost between 450 and 550 billion dollars per year. The study goes on to say disengaged employees are more likely to steal from their companies, negatively influence their coworkers, miss workdays, and drive customers away. Engaged employees, however, usually drive the innovation, growth, and revenue that their companies desperately need. Friends, if you want to give a testimony of the power of Christ... Ask the Lord to make this verse a reality for you. If you need a New Testament companion for that, Colossians 3.23, it says this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Ask God, would you help me to see my job that you've given me with your perspective? 
Would you give me strength to go about it in a way that will honor you? If you're like, well, I hate my job. Go talk to someone who's been unemployed for a long time. God has given us the ability to glorify him with work. The Jewish mind, the Jewish people didn't see work as part of the curse. They saw it as a stewardship and a responsibility. And so it is. And I want you to see from these verses, God wants us to make the most of our life. It's fleeting, so make the most of it. We have lost sight that God wants us to enjoy our days. Do you know, uh, you ever heard of the Garden of Eden? You guys have heard of that? Do you know what Eden means? Anybody know from Hebrew? Okay, this is very interesting. Eden means like delight or pleasure. You see, when God created the world and he created humanity, he put them in the garden of delight and pleasure. Got a question for you. What do you think he wanted them to do in that garden? Hate it? Uh, treasure? No. He wanted them to delight in it and he wanted to enjoy it. He gave them the plant. He gave them the animals. He gave them each other, man to woman, woman to man. He gave them all of these things so they would delight and enjoy in them. But I tell you what, sin has really done a number on this. And that is why, what God intends. He wants us to enjoy. First Timothy 4, 4 says, For everything is created, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. If you want joy, just be thankful. Thankfulness changes everything. Now, I want to give a caution. All these good things and these blessings you see here in verses 7 through 10. Enjoy the blessings, but do not idolize them. Don't turn these into idols. Tim Keller writes this. Sin is not the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. So if you're just like, well, it's all about the clothes for me or all about my food or how about this one about your job where you're willing to sacrifice anything for the job, it's all you think about, you're consumed by it, your whole life is oriented toward it. Friends, you've perhaps turned that into an idol. What you want to do is be thankful. You What you want to do is ask God, help me to do the best I can where I'm at. In your strength, for your glory and honor. And he's, and the best way to do that is just be thankful. That's one of the reasons why we pray before we eat. You ever wonder, like, where did that come from? It's because the Christian knows this food just didn't appear. This is a blessing from God, and I will thank him for it. And that's what God intends. And when we consider all the blessings in our life, thank you should be on our lips pretty regularly. And when it is... Why we experience joy in life. We're making the most of our days. If you want the mindset of moving forward in this life, be confident in God. Make the most of your days. And look at how it ends. Verses 11 through 18. Leave the outcomes with God. Solomon writes, I again saw, verse 11, under the sun, that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. What he's saying is that wisdom cannot guarantee the, the outcomes in these unpredictable contingencies of life. Yeah, normally the fastest person wins the race. That's been my experience, and it wasn't usually me. Yes, 
The smartest individuals generally make lots of money. Yes, the best warriors, they usually win the battle, but not always. You need to come to a place in your confidence with God that you're saying, Lord, yeah, I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to do verse 10, but I'm leaving the outcomes with you. These, when it talks about time and chance, it's like it's this means that of occurrence of events that they're in the providential hand of God. It isn't the chance like luck. And I want to just say something about luck, okay? The idea of, of luck is, a, is appealing to an idea that God is impersonal. And there's some sort of forces that are working that are antithetical to a personal God. And so you see this. I mean, people have lucky days, lucky socks. Uh, they read their horoscope. Today's my day. I'm going to make an act. Like rabbit's foot. I mean, how gross is that? Why would you even put a rabbit's foot in your pocket? Don't do things like that. We don't believe in luck. We're trusting and believing in a providential God who orchestrates situations. And sometimes it works out the way we think it will. And sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you know, you've been involved in, in a business deal. Then you've worked hard on this. Months of phone calls and getting everything all lined up. And then only to find out right before you're supposed to sign. And all of a sudden it all falls apart. And then on the other hand, a week later... Just out of the blue, someone calls you. You don't even know them. And they're like, you know what you're offering? I need. How can I sign? And lo and behold, it happens. Friends, this is how life works. And we have to come to a place where we're just leaving the outcomes to God. Now, I want you to know that it'll throw you when you face situations where like you're planning, you're working. This seems to be the normal course. And all of a sudden, something's taken away. Some sort of tragedy hits. It can really throw you when you're in that situation. Some of you might be there right now. Ask God, Lord, what am I to learn from this? How am I to grow? Because I'm resting that I'm in your hand, but this doesn't make sense. Look what he says in verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. It's just like all of a sudden things seem to be fine. You're just kind of swimming around. And next thing you know, you're in the net. Whether you're caught up in some sort of trial that you don't understand or you you pass away. You don't know. I was uh, talking with uh, one guy who's going through some pretty serious professional difficulty. But he told me this. I am at rest in my uncertainty. I am at rest in my uncertainty. But I want you to know when it says that um, an individual can cause great havoc, uh, look at verse 13 and following. Solomon keeps in mind this, this man of wisdom. Look at this story. He recounts it in verse 13. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed a large siege works against it. But there was found in it, verse 15, a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. And yet no one remembered that poor man. And so I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better, better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is always better, whether people are listening or not. 
It has the power to deliver. But you're going to sometimes encounter a fool, and although he doesn't know the answers, he feels compelled to move his mouth and just say things, and maybe you work for someone like this. He's just saying, listen, wisdom is better. Even if you go forgotten, leave the outcomes with God. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And I'm sure he had several examples to think about, like Adam, first man. His evil, man, it it created a lot of destruction. Or he could think about his own, his dad, David. His sin led to a lot of trouble for Israel. Or he could think about Absalom, who led the nation in a revolt and led to a civil war. Friends, I want you to learn to leave the outcomes with God. That is how you move forward in this life. And let's, let's take the big one on right now, death. Death is certain. But we're trusting in the one who overcame death. Remember Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18? You have this appearance of Jesus, and he says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I've got it. I am the one. I've overcome the grave. And that, by virtue of the fact that he's alive, life doesn't have to be vain. Or we can have the confidence that Paul had, like in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You're living life under the sun, life apart from God. All you can expect is vanity, and then comes death. However, you're trusting in the Son, the Savior. Your work matters. Your life matters. It's not in vain. You see, how we live depends on who we're living for. Remember how we began, we were talking about Scott Hamilton? And, I mean, what an amazing athlete. And you'd think like, wow, you know, life must have been really good for a guy like Scott Hamilton. In actuality, uh, he's had a lot of difficulties. In 2012, uh, he appeared on these videos called I Am Second. And he actually gave his testimony. It was profound. If you want to look it up, it's it's pretty amazing. He talks about growing up. uh, He had a mysterious illness that prevented him from growing. He got to five foot four. And he said, I spent most of my life early on in and out of hospitals, always in hospitals coming out. Um, it was very difficult. One time coming out of a hospital, they took him to a skating club and it was just by accident that he actually encountered skating and that took a life of its own. He had a lot of major difficulties in life. One that hit him really hard was the death of his mother who lost her battle with cancer and This devastation, he said, awakened in him something I knew I needed something more. And not wanting to let his mother down or be less than she thought he should be, he went on to win 16 consecutive world championships and national titles and a gold medal. And yet, at the height of his career in 1997, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer that had spread to his abdomen 
On November 14, 2002, after this major bout with cancer, he married Tracy Robinson, who was instrumental in leading Scott Hamilton to Christ and bringing him to church. Almost two years to the day of their wedding, he was diagnosed with a benign brain tumor. And he talks about when I went and I told Tracy and she took my hands and we started to pray. And this is what he said. And it was in that moment I knew where I was going to put everything, my trust, my faith, everything. Hamilton said it was the most powerful moment in his life. It was during this when they with these brain, this brain tumor that he had that they discovered this was the reason why he never grew past five foot four. And listen to what he said about this. That was the mysterious illness I had never diagnosed, that they had never diagnosed, that got me into skating. I'm five foot four. If I were five eight, where would I be? I chose to look at that brain tumor as the greatest gift I could have gotten because it made everything else possible. And for Scott Hamilton, He's been diagnosed with benign brain tumors in 2004, 2010, and 2016. Some of these have involved some very intricate surgeries. And he says this, looking back, I understand that though that through a strong relationship with Jesus, you can endure anything. I just learned that the only true disability in life is a bad attitude. And then he declares, God is there to guide you through the tough spots. God was there every single time. Every single time. So friends, you and I, we need a mindset for moving forward in this life. And that's what we've got here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Be confident in God. Make the most of your days. And just leave the outcomes with God. For how we live depends upon who we are living for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a profound passage of scripture for someone who is here today who has never truly trusted jesus and you brought them here so that today will be their day of salvation will they pray with me and say lord i turn from myself and my sin and this morning i believe in christ and everything about me lord i'm just trusting you lead me and lord for all of us help us not to just like tuck this away in our mind Lord, help us to live this out in our life through the strength of Jesus. To be confident in you, to make the most of our days, and just to leave the outcomes with you. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.